Section two of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part two. Political Action. Chapter one. Women Invade the Capital. Where are the people? This was Woodrow Wilson's first question as he arrived at Union Station in Washington the day before his first inauguration to the presidency in March 1913. On the avenue watching the suffragist parade came the answer. The suffrage issue was brought oftenest to his attention from then on until his final surrender. It lay entirely with him as to how long women would be obliged to remind him of this issue before he willed to take a hand. The people were on the avenue watching the suffragist parade. The informant was quite right. It seemed to those of us who attempted to march for our idea that day that the whole world was there, packed closely on Pennsylvania Avenue. The purpose of the procession was to dramatize in numbers and beauty the fact that women wanted to vote, that women were asking the administration in power in the national government to speed the day. What politicians had not been able to get through their minds, we would give them through their eyes, often a powerful substitute. Our first task seemed simple actually to show that thousands of women wanted immediate action on their long-delayed enfranchisement. This we did. This was the first demonstration under the leadership of Alice Paul, at that time chairman of the Congressional Committee of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. It was also the beginning of Woodrow Wilson's liberal education. The administration, without intending it, played into the hands of the women from this moment. The women had been given a permit to march. Inadequate police protection allowed roughs to attack them and all but break up the beautiful pageant. The fact of ten thousand women marching with banners and bands for this idea was startling enough to wake up the government and the country, but not so startling as ten thousand women manhandled by irresponsible crowds because of police indifference. An investigation was demanded and a perfunctory one held. The police administration was exonerated, but when the storm of protest had subsided, the chief of police was quietly retired to private life. It was no longer a secret that women wanted to vote, and that they wanted the President and Congress to act. A few days later, the first deputation of suffragists ever to appear before a President to enlist his support for the passage of the National Suffrage Amendment waited upon President Wilson. Footnote. There had been individual visits to previous Presidents. End of footnote. Miss Paul led the deputation. With her were Mrs. Genevieve Stone, wife of Congressman Stone of Illinois, Mrs. Harvey W. Wiley, Mrs. Ida Houston Harper, and Miss Mary Bartlett Dixon of Maryland. The President received the deputation in the White House offices. When the women entered, they found five chairs arranged in a row, with one chair in front, like a classroom. All confessed to being frightened when the President came in, and took his seat at the head of the class. The President said he had no opinion on the subject of women's suffrage that he had never given it any thought. Footnote. At Colorado Springs in 1911, when Mr. Wilson was governor of New Jersey, in campaigning for the presidential nomination, a delegation of Colorado women asked him his position on women's suffrage. He said, Ladies, this is a very arguable question, and my mind is in the midst of the argument. End of footnote. And that, above all, it was his task to see that Congress concentrated on the currency revision and the tariff reform. It is recorded that the President was somewhat taken aback when Miss Paul addressed him during the course of the interview with this query. But, Mr. President, do you not understand that the administration has no right to legislate for currency, tariff, or any other reform without first getting the consent of women to these reforms? Get the consent of women? 
It was evident that this course had not heretofore occurred to him. "'This subject will receive my most careful consideration,' was President Wilson's first suffrage promise. He was given time to consider, and a second deputation went to him, and still a third, asking him to include the suffrage amendment in his message to the new Congress, assembling in extra session the following month, and still he was obsessed with the paramount considerations of tariff and currency. He flatly said there would be no time to consider suffrage for women, but the unreasonable women kept right on insisting that the liberty of half the American people was paramount to tariff and currency. President Wilson's first session of Congress came together April 7, 1913. The opening day was marked by the suffrages second mass demonstration. This time women delegates representing every one of the 435 congressional districts in the country bore petitions from the constituencies showing that the people back home wanted the amendment passed. The delegates marched on Congress and were received with a warm welcome and their petitions presented to Congress. The same day, the amendment which bears the name of Susan B. Anthony, who drafted it in 1875, was reintroduced into both houses of Congress. The month of May saw monster demonstrations in many cities and villages throughout the country, with the direct result that in June the Senate Committee on Suffrage made the first favorable report made by that committee in 21 years, thereby placing it on the Senate calendar for action. Not relaxing the pressure for a day, we organized the third great demonstration on the last of July, when a monster petition signed by hundreds of thousands of citizens was brought to the Senate, asking that body to pass the National Suffrage Amendment. Women from all parts of the country mobilized in the countryside of Maryland, where they were met with appropriate ceremonies, by the Senate Women's Suffrage Committee. The delegation motored in gaily decorated automobiles to Washington and went direct to the Senate, where the entire day was given over to suffrage discussion. Twenty-two senators spoke in favor of the amendment in presenting their petitions. Three spoke against it. For the first time in twenty-six years, suffrage was actually debated in Congress. That day was historic. Speeches? Yes. Greetings? Yes. Present petitions from their constituents? Gladly. Report it from the Senate Committee? They had to concede that. But passage of the amendment? That was beyond their contemplation. More pressure was necessary. We appealed to the women voters, of whom there were then four million, to come into action. Four million women voters are watching you, we said to Congress. We might as well have said, there are in the South Sea Islands four million heathens. It was clear that these distant women voters had no relation in the senatorial mind to the realism of politics. We decided to bring some of these women voters to Washington. Having failed to get the Senate to act by August, we invited the Council of Women Voters to hold its convention in Washington, that Congress might learn this simple lesson. Women did vote. There were four million of them. They had a voters' organization. They cared about the enfranchisement of all American women. They wanted the Senate to act. Suffrage was no longer a moral problem. It could be made a practical political problem, with which men and parties would have to reckon. Voting women made their first impression on Congress that summer. Meanwhile, the President's paramount issues, tariff and currency, had been disposed of. With the December Congress approaching, he was preparing another message. We went to him again. This time it was the women from his own home state, an influential deputation of seventy-three women, including the suffrage leaders from all suffrage organizations in New Jersey. The women urged him to include recommendation of the suffrage resolution in his message to the new Congress. He replied, I am pleased, indeed, to greet you and your adherents here, and I will say to you that I was talking only yesterday with several members of Congress in regard to a suffrage committee in the House. The subject is one in which I am deeply interested, and you may rest assured 
that I will give it my earnest attention. In interesting himself in the formation of a special committee to sit on suffrage in the House, the President was doing the smallest thing, to be sure, that could be done, but he was doing something. This was a distinct advance. It was our task to press on until all the maze of congressional machinery had been used to exhaustion. Then there would be nothing left to do but to pass the amendment. A fourth time that year the determination of women to secure the passage of the amendment was demonstrated. In December, the opening week of the new Congress, the annual convention of the National American Women's Suffrage Association was held in Washington. Miss Lucy Burns, vice-chairman of its congressional committee, and also of the Congressional Union, was applauded to the echo by the whole convention, when she said, The National American Women's Suffrage Association is assembled in Washington to ask the Democratic Party to enfranchise the women of America. Rarely in the history of this country has a party been more powerful than the Democratic Party is today. It controls the executive office, the Senate, and more than two-thirds of the members of the House of Representatives. It is in a position to give us effective and immediate help. We ask the Democrats to take action now. Those who hold power are responsible to the country for the use of it. They are responsible not only for what they do, but for what they do not do. Inaction establishes just as clear a record as does a policy of open hostility. We have in our hands today not only the weapon of a just cause, we have the support of ten enfranchised states, comprising one-fifth of the United States Senate, one-seventh of the House of Representatives, and one-sixth of the electoral vote. More than three million six hundred thousand women have a vote in presidential elections. It is unthinkable that a national government which represents women and which appeals periodically for the suffrages of women should ignore the issue of the right of all women to political freedom. We cannot wait until after the passage of scheduled administration reforms. Congress is free to take action on our question in the present session. We ask the administration to support the women's suffrage amendment in Congress with its whole strength. This represented the attitude of the entire suffrage movement toward the situation in the winter of 1913. At no time did the militant group deviate from this position until the amendment was through Congress. It was difficult to make the administration believe that the women meant what they said, and that they meant to use everything in their power and resourcefulness to see it carried out. Men were used to having women ask them for suffrage, but they were disconcerted at being asked for it now, at being threatened with political chastisement if they did not yield to the demand. In spite of the repeated request to President Wilson that he include support of the measure in his message to Congress, he delivered his message December end while the convention was still in session, and failed to make any mention of the suffrage amendment. He recommended self-government for Filipino men instead. Immediately Miss Paul organized the entire convention into a fifth deputation to protest against this failure and to urge support in a subsequent message. Dr. Anna Howard Shaw led the interview. In reply to her eloquent appeal for his assistance, the President said in part, I am merely the spokesman of my party. I am not at liberty to urge upon Congress in messages policies which have not had the organic consideration of those for whom I am spokesman. I am by my own principles shut out, in the language of the street, from starting anything. I have to confine myself to those things which have been embodied as promises to the people at an election. I shall never forget that day. Shafts of sunlight came in at the window and fell full and square upon the white-haired leader who was in the closing days of her power. Her clear, deep, resonant voice, ringing with the genuine love of liberty, was in sharp contrast to the halting, timid, little and technical answer of the President. He stooped to utter some light pleasantry, which he thought would no doubt please the ladies. 
It did not provoke even a faint smile. Dr. Shaw had dramatically asked, "'Mr. President, if you cannot speak for us and your party will not, who then, pray, is there to speak for us?' "'You seem very well able to speak for yourselves, ladies,' with a broad smile, followed by a quick embarrassment when no one stirred. "'We mean, Mr. President, who will speak for us with authority?' came back the hot retort from Dr. Shaw. The President made no reply. Instead he expressed a desire to shake the hands of the three hundred delegates. A few felt that manners compelled them to acquiesce. The others filed out without this little political ceremony. Alice Paul's report to the National Convention for her year's work as Chairman of the Congressional Committee of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, and as Chairman also of the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage, showed that a budget of $27,000 had been raised and expended under her leadership, as against $10 spent during the previous year on congressional work. At the beginning of the year there was no interest in work with Congress. It was considered hopeless. At the close of the year 1918 it had become a practical political issue. Suffrage had entered the national field to stay. At this point the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage was obliged to become an independent body in order to continue this vigorous policy which the conservative suffrage leaders were unwilling to follow. Hearings, deputations to the President, petitions to Congress, more persistent lobbying, all these things continued during the following year under Miss Paul's leadership, with the result that a vote in the Senate was taken, though at an inopportune moment, the first vote in the Senate since 1887. The vote stood 86 to 84, thereby failing by 11 votes of the necessary two-thirds majority. This vote, nevertheless, indicated that a new strength in the suffrage battle had forced Congress to take some action. In the House, the Rules Committee, on a vote of four to four, refused to create a suffrage committee. We appealed to the Democratic Caucus to see if the party sustained this action. We wished to establish their party responsibility, one way or another, and by securing the necessary signatures to a petition, we compelled the caucus to meet. By a vote of 128 to 57, the caucus declared, that the question of women's suffrage is a state and not a federal question, as a substitute for the milder resolution offered, providing for the creation of a committee on women's suffrage. If this had left any doubt as to how the Democratic Party, as a party, stood, this doubt was conveniently removed by Representative Underwood, the majority leader of the House, when he said on the floor of the House the following day, The Democratic Party last night took the distinctive position that it was not in favor of this legislation, because it was in favor of the states controlling the question of suffrage. I not only said I was opposed to it, but I said the party on this side of the chamber was opposed to it, and the party that has control of the legislation in Congress certainly has the right to say that it will not support a measure if it is not in accordance with its principles. Meanwhile, the President had said to a deputation of working women who waited upon him in February, until the party, as such, has considered a matter of this very supreme importance, and taken its position, I am not at liberty to speak for it, and yet I am not at liberty to speak for it as an individual, for I am not an individual. But we ask you to speak to your party, not for it, answered Mrs. Gwendover Evans, chairman of the deputation, amid evident presidential embarrassment. These women, who had been inclined perhaps to accept the President's words as true to fact, entertained doubts when, a few days later, he demanded of his party in Congress the repeal of the free tolls provision in the Panama Canal Tolls Act. In doing so, he not only recommended action not endorsed by his party, but he demanded action which his party had specifically declared against. It was necessary to appeal again to the nation. We called for demonstrations of public approval of the amendment in every state on May 2nd. 
Thousands of resolutions were passed calling for action in Congress. These resolutions were made the center of another great demonstration in Washington, May 9th, when thousands of women in procession carried them to the Capitol, where beautiful and impressive ceremonies were held on the Capitol steps. The resolutions were formally received by members of Congress, and the demonstration ended dramatically with a great chorus of women massed on the steps singing the March of Women to the thousands of spectators packed closely together on the Capitol grounds. And still the President withheld his support. Under our auspices, 500 representative club women of the country waited upon him in another appeal for help. Footnote. Seventh Deputation to the President, June 30, 1914. End of footnote. To them he explained his passion for local self-government, which led to his conviction that this is a matter for settlement by the states and not by the federal government. Footnote. This amounted to virtual opposition because of the great difficulties, some of them almost insuperable, involved in amending many state constitutions. End of footnote. Women had to face the fact that the 63rd Congress had made a distinctly hostile record on suffrage. The President, as leader of his party, had seven times refused all aid. The Democratic Party had recorded its opposition through an adverse vote in the Senate and a caucus vote in the House, forbidding even consideration of the measure. It became clear that some form of political action would have to be adopted which would act as an accelerator to the administration. This feeling was growing momentarily among many women, but it was conspicuously strong in the mind of Mrs. Oliver H. B. Belmont, recognized as one of the ablest suffrage leaders in the country. Anticipating the unfriendly record made by the Democrats in the 63rd Congress, Mrs. Belmont had come to Miss Paul and her vice-chairman, Miss Lucy Burns, to urge the formulation of a plan whereby we could strike at administration opposition through the women voters of the West. Miss Paul had the same idea and welcomed the support of this plan by so able a leader. Mrs. Belmont was impatient to do nationally what she had already inaugurated in New York State suffrage work, make suffrage an election issue. She was the first suffragist in America to be militant, enough to wage a campaign against office-seekers on the issue of women's suffrage. She was roundly denounced by the opposition press, but she held her ground. It is interesting to record that she defeated the first candidate for the New York Assembly ever campaigned against on this issue. She had associated herself with the Pankhursts in England, and was the first suffrage leader here publicly to commend the tactics of the English militants. Through her, Mrs. Pankhurst made her first visits to America, where she found a sympathetic audience. Even among the people who understood and believed in English tactics, the general idea here was that only in the backward country of England was militancy necessary. In America, men would give women what women wanted without a struggle. Mrs. Belmont was the one suffrage leader who foresaw a militant battle here whenever women should determine to ask for their freedom immediately. In a great measure, she prepared the way for that battle. Since the movement had not even advanced to the stage of political action at that time, however, Mrs. Belmont realized that political action would have to be exhausted before attempting more aggressive tactics. Not knowing whether Miss Paul had contemplated inaugurating political action in the national field, she sought out the new leader and urged her to begin at once to organize the women's power for use in the approaching national elections. Those interested in the women's movement are fairly familiar with Mrs. Belmont's early state suffrage work and her work with the militants in England, but they do not know as much about her national work. It is not easy for a woman of vast wealth to be credited with much else in America than the fact of generosity in giving money to the cause in which she believes. Wealth dazzles us, and we look no further. Mrs. Belmont has given hundreds of thousands of dollars to suffrage, both state and national, 
but she has given greater gifts in her militant spirit, her political sagacity, and a marked tactical sense. She was practically the only leader formerly associated with the conservative forces who had the courage to extricate herself from the old routine propaganda and adventure into new paths. She always approached the struggle for liberty in a wholesome revolutionary mood. She was essentially a leader, and one who believed in action, always action. Until the movement in America regained its militant spirit, her heart was primarily with the English women, because she thought their fight so magnificent that it would bring suffrage to women in England sooner than our slow-going methods would bring it to us. In 1910, when English militancy was at its height, Mrs. Belmont gave out an interview in London, in which she predicted that English women would have the suffrage before us. She even went so far as to say that we in America would have to create an acute situation here, probably a form of militancy, before we could win. At the same time, the president of the International Suffrage Alliance said in London, the suffrage movement in England resembles a battle. It is cruel and tragic. Ours in America is an evolution, less dramatic, slow, but more sure. Facts sustained Mrs. Belmont's prophecy. Facts did not sustain the other prediction. English women got the vote in 1918. American women were not enfranchised nationally until August 1920. The following is the political theory and program approved by Mrs. Belmont, and submitted to the Congressional Union by its chairman, Alice Paul, at a conference of the organization at the home of Mrs. Belmont in Newport in August 1914. The dominant party, at that time the Democratic Party, is responsible for all action, and therefore for action on suffrage. This party's action has been hostile to this message. The dominant party in the approaching election must be convinced, and through it all other parties, that opposition to suffrage is inexpedient. All parties will be convinced when they see that their opposition costs them votes. Our fight is a political one. We must appeal for support to the constituency which is most friendly to suffrage, that constituency being the voting women. An attempt must be made, no matter how small, to organize the women's vote. An appeal must be made to the women voters in the nine suffrage states to withhold their support from the Democrats nationally until the National Democratic Party ceases to block the suffrage amendment. This is nonpartisanship in the highest degree, as it calls upon women to forego previous allegiance to a party. If they are Democrats in this instance, they must vote against their party. If the Republican Party were in power and pursued a similar course, we would work against that party. The party which sees votes falling away will change its attitude. After we have once affected by this means the outcome of a national election, even though slightly, every party will hesitate to trifle with our measure any longer. All candidates from suffrage states are professing suffragists, and therefore we have nothing to lose by defeating a member of the dominant party in those states. Another suffragist will take his place. Men will object to being opposed because of their party responsibility in spite of their friendliness individually to suffrage, but women certainly have a right to further through the ballot their wishes on the suffrage question, as well as on other questions like currency, tariff, and what not. This can only be done by considering the party record, for as the individual record and individual pledges go, all candidates are practically equal. We, as a disenfranchised class, consider our right to vote preeminently over any other issue in any party's program. Political leaders will resent our injecting our issue into their campaign, but the rank and file will be won when they see the loyalty of women to women. This policy will be called militant, and in a sense it is, being strong, positive, and energetic. 
If it is militant to appeal to women to use their vote to bring suffrage to this country, then it is militant to appeal to men or women to use their vote to any good end. To the question of, how will we profit if another party comes in, our answer will be that adequate political chastisement of one party for its bad suffrage record through a demonstration of power by women voters, affecting the result of the national election, will make it easier to get action from any party in power. Amidst tremendous enthusiasm, this plan was accepted by the little conference of women at Newport, and $7,000 pledged in a few moments to start it. There was a small group of women, an infinitely small budget with which to wage a campaign in nine states, but here was also enthusiasm and resolute determination. A tiny handful of women, never more than two, more often only one to a state, journeyed forth from Washington into the nine suffered states of the West to put before the voting women this political theory, and to ask them to support it. End of section 2